0: You're listening to Tiger's Eye, episode 13.
1: My name is Miguel Alejandro Delgado and I am far from home. I remember as though it was yesterday, the first time my father encouraged me to steal. We are standing in a marketplace in Guanajuato and he turns to me and says,
0: Let's play a game, you and I.
1: I am four years old. A few minutes later he is loudly arguing with the owner of a fruit stall about the freshness of his produce and I am putting five avocados down my shirt my heart is pounding in my chest a woman sees my fumbling and cries out a hand grips my shoulder and I wriggle free looking desperately around to my father for help he glances down at me and a terrible moment passes when I am not sure what he will do I will slow him down if we run. Or he could pretend not to know me. The shouting begins, and he bellows louder than everyone else, furious with me for daring to steal from this good, honest, hard-working man. He starts pulling avocados out of my shirt and giving them back to the shopkeeper. Three of them. He marches me round the corner, still shouting and striking me round the back of the head. When we are out of sight, he retrieves the remaining two avocados and begins to eat. He tells me I should not have been seen, that I am a bad thief and that I lose the game. He, however, through his quick thinking, managed to rescue victory from the jaws of my defeat. He gives me a small piece of avocado and tells me that next time I must do better or we shall starve. I resolve to become accomplished in this game, because I love my father and I wish to make him proud. I tell him so, he does not look at me. The next day he has forgotten his anger and tells me to steal again. And again I am seen, but there is more food in my pockets as we run. Within weeks, I am able to take a few pieces easily. We are ordered to leave Guanajuato shortly after this. Too many thieves around. Outsiders cannot be trusted. Before that time, I am two years old. My grandmother is telling me stories. I cannot recall her face, but those hands of hers have never left my memory, brown and delicate with crinkled skin covering all bones. She tells me her great-grand ancestors were Aztec, which connects me with that long-ago time and those ancient people. That means her stories are my stories, too. My favorites are the frightening ones. The story of the Nahual, in particular has been mesmerized. This is a brujo, a warlock, who is no longer satisfied with simply being a man. He speaks with the coyote, the dog, the wolf or the jaguar until he understands them better than any other. Then with their animal spirits and animal fur and animal teeth planted in his mind, He sheds his skin, changing his shape and becomes one with them. Roaming the land, free of his former prison, he is able to satisfy his darkest desires, devouring livestock, taking women, men and children. My grandmother's hands grip mine lightly. She swears that in her younger days she saw one such being. What was most frightening was that she witnessed him assuming the form of a man again. In her words, the last thing to change were his eyes. And thinking back, she could not be certain they changed at all. What did you do, Ebrulita? I asked. I hid until he found me, and then ran until he could not catch me. Had I been older, I would not have believed her. I would also have scoffed inside, but hidden it to save hurting her feelings. I was born in 1871, the last year in which adults believe that there are no monsters, no real ones. Now I know for certain that there are, but my grandmother is far behind me. Nor one day passes when I do not miss those warm, papery hands. My father swears I am misremembering the events of the day Puebla fell to the monsters that swarmed in from the north. Many people were fleeing America. The creatures came with them. I have only flashes in my mind of that day. Much of it added to in the years since with what we have learned and other dreadful situations I have been in. So I cannot altogether trust the clear image of my mother being there. My father says she was not and that the monsters took her before we left along with my sister and three brothers. I have an image in my mind of men and women without clothes. They do not move like us. They are barking and snarling and falling from the rooftops upon the people of Puebla. I wonder at how savage the people of the north must be to behave in this way. Then I recognize Father Hernandez. He is eating Bianca, the pretty lady from the flower shop round the corner. It is then that the story of the Nahua that has so fascinated me takes full form. All of these people have shed their human skins and are now playing so well at being animals that they will not go back. By the time we can see Puebla from afar it is burning and over that time my father, Francisco Delgado has become my whole world. Still that memory abides a lady screaming at him from the balcony to help her He tells me it was the Nahual screaming. But this thought fills me with fear and shame, for though the priest and the flower seller remain sharply in view, whether that lady on the balcony was her or not, I cannot remember my mother's face either. I later learn on our travels north through Mexico that my father is moving against the tide. He would not run to the sea, he explains to me when I am older. I would have left us with nowhere to go afterward. So we head north. I do not know if this was a foolhardy gamble or a shrewd calculation. He is a man capable of either. But I live today to speak these words. So whichever it was I am thankful. We do not stop moving long. We have been nomads, journeying from place to place and making the best of what we find there until our welcome is outstayed. Maybe the things I steal get noticed, maybe my father displeases the men he is working for. Either way, wherever we come to rest, we are soon to be unwelcome. I am eight years old in 1879 when we cross over into America. By now I have learned both Spanish and English. I must know how to speak both if I am to get by out here. The places we have passed through have all felt the bite of the shapeshifters. The best were able to regroup and survive in a quiet, hard land, separated from one another and subsisting through long years. The worst are nests for the creatures who seem to remember that they once liked to sleep in houses. On hot afternoons, the other children and I venture out to these ghost towns and dare one another to get the closest. Standing under the beating sun and hearing nothing but cicadas, we inch closer, talking in whispers and staring across at the doorways and windows. I know today how fast they are, And how lucky I am. The people we meet are often desperate. And I see many terrible things done in the name of survival. My father tells me that my stealing is our survival. And it is no different from harvesting crops from the earth. Unlike the worst of these people or the beasts we lie awake at night listening for. I am not hurting anyone. My crimes are small, my sins forgivable. At Canton, not far from the recently liberated city of Dallas, we help with the building of the railway line, a project abandoned for years. All the roads have been closed. Wood and metal cannot be moved around the country. But now the Texans are working at it again. I recall among the people in Canton the Zhang family, who labored through each day and long into every night. The father, Li, despite his small frame, is able to swing a sledgehammer alongside men double his size. The mother, Hueh Ru, is a clerk, spending her days organizing the shipments and orders with the most beautiful handwriting I have ever seen. Their three daughters, may Fung, and Hu, fetch and carry water and food for the workers, and run messages between the steel yards and the timber mill. They are the kindest, most honest people I have ever met. As we leave Canton, my father picks through the box of their belongings, tossing aside what is not of value to him. I gaze at each treasure as it falls to the dusty ground behind the wheels of our cart, filled with horror and disgust at myself. I can barely breathe. My throat has seized up. I cannot scrub the memory of their faces from my mind gathering my courage i tell him that this was the last time i will steal i know as i say the words that they will make him furious perhaps more than i have ever seen him i like to remember that moment of resolve more than what followed i wear this cigar burn upon my shoulder as a badge of pride He is my only family and all that I have but I cannot escape my fear of him and on the nights when he drinks, like on that evening leaving Canton, I see a monster no longer satisfied with simply being a man. In July 1880 we are in Texarkana having moved across Texas to its easternmost point. We have finally reached the Pan-State Line. Behind it lie the Eastern Americas. We sit in a cantina, and a Puerto Rican lady named Marta tells us all she knows of this border that divides a continent. We already know that the survivors of the first outbreaks headed west. Then the government began to rebuild from the ashes and set their sights on reclaiming Washington. For that they needed an army, the greatest the world has ever seen. So they could not let anyone flee anymore. They need everyone. In 1876 the line was drawn. All along it stand guard towers bearing hard hearted men with rifles. They let nobody cross in either direction. My father asks if he could simply put me upon his shoulders and run straight through. Marta shakes her head slowly, and a cold shiver runs through me when I see the look in her eyes. You cannot run this line. Why not head to the Pacific? I already know my father's answer. He maintains once again that we are alive today because we went against the tide. I now think he wants to keep moving because he is afraid to stop. She tells us if we truly want to go east there is only one thing the two of us can do. We must make ourselves useful. Within two hours, we are standing at the military barracks at Red River. Even at nine years old, they take me, and my father as well. We sign our names in the conscription papers and receive our uniforms. They have little in my size, but I am given a cap to wear as we march into Arkansas. On either side of me, men and women wear the blues of the Reunified States Army. After several hours, my father says that my legs are hurting and brings me to the back of the line. By degrees, we drop back farther and farther as the troops head towards the barracks in Miller County. On our last rest stop, he makes a show of removing stones from his boots and when the call goes out to resume marching, We are just far enough away from the group for him to pull me into an overgrown wheat field. We wait. The breath frozen in our lungs as the procession moves off knowing full well the penalty for desertion is execution. By nightfall it is safe to emerge and he leaves his uniform buried in the mud. He takes my shirt and pants and I stand naked and humiliated as my cap is snatched off and buried. As we make our way north headed for any town without a military presence my father never notices the wadded up conscription papers I have clutched in my left hand. It is dangerous to keep these but for some reason I do not want to let them be destroyed and buried. A week later and we are in a new settlement named Hope. My father says it is a sign and that these people will be of use to us. He seeks out the most powerful man in town and then finds his rival and asks if there is any work to be done. This is his way. And it is effective.
0: You have been listening to Tiger's Eye, written and edited by Alex Shaw, with a full cast. Miguel, performed by Alex Shaw Francisco, performed by Matt Wardle Grandmother, performed by Loretta Saylor Marta, performed by Sharon Shaw The main theme was Agent in Shanghai, composed by 1M1 Music of Shockwave Sound Silent Winter by Running Wolf you also heard Terminal and Whimsy Groove performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com Our special Patreon sponsors and contributors this month were Dan Mayer, Ian Hopwood, Megan Hopwood, Erish Traverse, Nick Grugin, Joel Robinson, Russell Osborne, David Garcia Abril, Maureen Foley, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, Lorraine Chisham, Livio De La Cruz, scott corzine once you've left your much appreciated itunes rating or review come along to the podcast blog on new show.podbean.com and click follow that'll cultivate some discussion among the fan community on there add a big thank you for this week's itunes review on the uk store from a fellow named Hyperdeath, who said very gratifyingly of this series prepare to have your mind blown See, now I have to live up to that promise. Stay tuned.